Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Can you imagine losing Jesus? <laughs> uh, like imagine what... Mary and Joseph must have felt when they realized, we don't know where Jesus is, like we've gone a day's journey, no clue where he is. Um, the stress like you must have felt, like not only was this their, their boy, um, he's the Messiah, like this is the one who was promised thousands of years ago, people have been waiting on him to come and they have no idea where he is. Um, I imagine being the Christ's parents would have been stressful at times, and this is one of those moments where you're like, wow, what a, what a duty. Um, also, if you're a parent, you're, if you're, uh, maybe you're expecting what's it going to be like, uh, it's going to be okay. You're, you're not going like, to probably lose Jesus or anything like that. So, um, This is the, the true and better Home Alone story, isn't it? Lost in Jerusalem. Um, I, I love this passage. Um, before we get into what it's about, let me tell you what it isn't about. It's not a, this isn't a defense of uh, free-range parenting, if you want to call it that. Um, it, it's also not uh, a passage that shows us um, what, what bad parenting uh, looks like. Um, have, you ever, have you ever, like, read this and thought, man, they just, 12 years in, they just haven't, they, just, they don't have it down yet. Like, these are, these are uh, maybe not the best parents. I actually think it shows us the opposite in, in some ways, but we won't get into that. I really don't think this, this passage is, is solely about parenting. Um, it's fascinating. It's a precious, precious part of Scripture for us. 
Um, really, besides a very brief section in Matthew's gospel that, that describes this, um, this family having to go to Egypt for a period of time, uh, this is really the only insight that all four gospel writers give us about the, the childhood uh, of Jesus. Um, he's 12 years old here. Um, we, we get stories about his infancy. We did that. We, we've been looking at that through Advent. Uh, we looked at a, a kind of 40-day-year-old Jesus last week. Um, but then all four gospel writers are, are just okay with jumping straight to his adulthood. We're going to go straight to like 30-year-old man Jesus um, beginning his ministry. And then you get this, the bulk of, the, of each gospel is about his, his life, his, his adult ministry, three years of his intense ministry, his death, his resurrection, all that's recorded, um, then they're okay with just this 30-year gap, 30-year silence uh, of the life of Jesus, except for this quick story that Luke tells us about the 12-year-old boy, Jesus, um, left behind in Jerusalem, three days missing, his family, they're away, they realize what's happened, like any good parent, they freak out, head back, search for him uh, in Jerusalem, and they just find him in the temple. Like he's just hanging out with the teachers, chopping it up with the rabbis. Um, that's the only insight that we get into the childhood of Jesus. Uh, there are some like legends that arose in the second and third century that are uh, interesting, kind of funny about the, the, the childhood of Jesus. Um, these, these accounts that were put into like apocryphal gospels that the early church rightly rejected as not having the authority of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, these earliest uh, gospel accounts that we have. One of those like rejected gospels is the, the infancy gospel of Thomas, um, which uh, tries to give like this from age five to age 12 of Jesus, this kind of boyhood of Jesus. And there's like some fanciful, even like malevolent, uh, miraculous uh, stories in that gospel. There's a story of, of Jesus making clay birds as a boy, breathing life into them, which is kind of sweet and interesting. But then there's another story of, of like another boy bumping into Jesus, and Jesus kills him by cursing him. Like he, he's like finding his powers, and uh, it's, you, can, you can read it, and you're like, oh, I see why the church is like, yeah, this isn't good. <laughs> We're going to reject this as legend. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why so few stories uh, about his childhood are in the, the Bible is because the gospel writers, they're, they're not interested in, in feeding like the pious curiosity of the church with legends about Jesus's uh, childhood. They're content with that 30-year-old, that 30-year blank space in, in the life of Jesus because of their sole purpose. Like their, their sole purpose, their sole interest is on giving us the heart of the gospel. They're, 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 they're not interested in peripheral matters. And, and that's where our focus should be as well. Maybe someday we'll sit with Jesus and he'll, he'll tell us stories about his childhood. Um, because, because he indeed had one. Verse 40 tells us that, that Jesus was a child and, and he grew. He became strong, just like all childs do, they, all children do. He, he was filled with wisdom. He, he learned things just like you did um, because he was 100% God, God, but he was also 100% human. Um, someday, I hope, we'll sit with him and he'll tell us stories about his childhood, those peripheral matters. What was it like to grow up uh, as Jesus? Um, that's not the point of the Gospels, though. The point of the Gospels is to show us who Jesus is as the Savior of humanity, like, like who Jesus is in relation to God and man and how He has uh, made forgiveness available for a, a, a lost, sinful human race. Um, we're not given any kind of peripheral stories except for this one story that Luke gives us. 
So you must ask ourselves the question, why did Luke include this story about this 12-year-old Jesus? Um, Here's two two good questions to ask yourself when you're reading your Bible, like whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament or in Luke's gospel. Two great questions to ask yourselves when you're reading a text in the Bible is, is, what does this say about Jesus and what does it mean for me? Ask yourselves that question when you're reading the Bible. What does this say about Jesus, who He is, and what does it mean for us? And hopefully this morning we'll, we'll answer those questions about this boy, Jesus. Um, let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, your Holy Spirit who, who guided Luke um, to, to, to write an orderly account, uh, a trustworthy account, um, uh, an account that will hopefully uh, bolster our, our confidence in you, uh, give, us, give us certainty about who you, Jesus, are. Um, Teach us this morning, Lord. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, on the surface, you can think, like, wow, this is a wild story, isn't it? Like, losing Jesus for, for three whole days. Um, when you really think about it, it's kind of a familiar story, isn't it? Like, like most parents in the room will know that the panic of losing your child in a, in a crowded space and then the, the relief of finding them safe and, and unharmed. Um, so, like, like, all jokes aside, it's, it's, it's a pretty realistic story in a way. Um, I hope you noticed how, how it's bookended. This story's kind of bookended with verse 40 and verse 52. Did you notice how those, those two verses mirror each other? Verse 40 said, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, again, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So also when you're reading your Bibles, look out for things that he keeps repeating stuff or there's things that kind of mirror each other. Um, we're not going to get too deep into like the hypostatic union, which is this like the- theology of, of the union of Christ's humanity and his divinity. Like he's 100% God, but he's 100% man. Um, just, can we just admit that's kind of like an impossible thing to grasp in our human minds, but it's incredibly important, and we're not going to get deep into that today, but I do love texts that, that put it on display for us. Like, there's plenty of, of text in the Bible that show the godness of Jesus, isn't there? Like, this is someone who walks on water. This is someone who, who heals people. He, he, he speaks to storms, and they just come. He raises people from the dead. He himself rises from the dead after being uh, in a grave for three days. There's, there's plenty of texts where you see his godness, but I love these texts where you see his, his humanness as well, which is what 40 and 52 show us, right? Like he was, he was a child once, and he, he grew, and he became stronger. He, he learned things over time. He, he gained wisdom. His, his humanness is on display. Um, if you know your Bible, if you were with us through the Hebrews series that we did, you might be asking yourself the question, how does that line up with Hebrews 13, verse 8, which says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Like, how, does, how can that be? If, if Jesus is God and God is unchanging, how can he grow and, and increase in wisdom and in stature? And the writer of Hebrews, he's saying, when he says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, he's, he's speaking of the person of this Christ. He's, he's speaking of the, the character and the, and the attributes of the Son of God that never change. So how, how the Son relates to the Father never changes. That Jesus is, is, the, is the word uh, that was in the beginning. That's what John 1 tells us. He's, he's this, this Son that is eternal, 
Jesus was there. He's the one who spoke creation into being. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the one who holds the universe together with his power. Jesus said in Revelation 1 that he's the alpha, the omega. He has no beginning. He has no end. We saw last week Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. This, this, this person, this, this, this character that never changes. And so what's beautiful about the gospel, this, these texts, is, is that that unchanging, eternal, perfect person who never changes in his relationship with the Father, with, with his people, with creation, he, he puts on flesh and he, he becomes like us. This, this unchanging person, he, he wraps himself in humanity. He condescends to our level. And, and he's the same as he's always been, but he's also now like you and me. He, he's now a man. He, he was once a child who, who grew and he learned and he, he, he gained wisdom, all without sin, but in the same way like we did. I love how the chapter 2 shows us the the role of his parents in his growing. Have you noticed that? Like Mary and Joseph, these, these blessed parents that, that Jesus had. Through chapter two, you, you see how Luke's telling us something about them. They're, they were righteous. They were, they were devout to God and his word. They, they loved God. They strived to walk in his ways. They observed the law of Moses that God gave his people. This, this instruction for how they were to, to relate to God. Luke's saying these are righteous Jews who who brought their son Jesus up to be one as well. You see that through the text. Verse 21 says they they circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. Why? Because the law told them to do that. They they named him Jesus. Why? Because God told them that's what his name should be. Verse 22, they came uh, for the purification law. That's because that's what God commanded the people to do. They they presented Jesus to the Lord, this dedication in the temple, because that's what the law told them to do. In verse 39, they, it says they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Why? Because they loved God. Because they, they wanted to walk in his ways. You see their role in, in Jesus' childhood here, in him growing? Like sometimes, don't you just think, did Jesus even need Mary and Joseph? Like, it's kind of like a, a womb on hire. Like, he just, you know, there's a, a purpose there, but he didn't really need them. He's God, Right? This, this human child needed his parents. He, he was placed with these parents who, who brought him up according to God's word. So I guess in a way this is a kind of a sub-point of, of this text. It is a parenting point. You can't undermine the importance of Mary and Joseph in Jesus' infancy and his childhood. Like you can, don't undermine the importance of Jesus having people like Simeon and Anna who prophesied over him at a young age and said, this is who you're going to be. Aren't those real factors that help explain verse 40 and 52, why Jesus grew and became strong, why he was filled with wisdom? I think there's something we can take away from these like humanity parts of the gospels. Like if it was important for Jesus to have parents who who brought him up to walk with God, to, to know God, to know who he is, isn't it, how much more important is it for us? Like our children, don't they need parents who, who are diligently striving after holiness, like Mary and Joseph were? They, they, our, parent, our, our children need parents who, who know the Lord, who, who are carefully walking in his ways and are teaching our children to do the same. That's kind of a sub-point, I think. Um, verses, between verses 39 and 40, 12 years go by, and then Luke gives us this story. 
Um, verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. So again, this righteousness of Mary and Joseph are on display that this is important to their family, to, to, to raise their children up. We go every year to celebrate how God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. Verse 42, when he was 12 years old, Jesus, they, they went up according to custom. And when the feast ended, they were returning back to Nazareth. That's where they lived. And the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Um, it's important to understand how busy Jerusalem would be for this, this feast. Like Jews from all over Israel were, were coming to, to Jerusalem for the celebration. The city is packed. The streets are bustling. And when that feast, that celebration is over, the Mary and Josephs, they, they, what's their last name? The Carpenters or something. They, they, they I know, I know. They, 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 packed their family up, and they started to make that journey back to Nazareth. And depending on how they were traveling, it, it would have taken anywhere from three days to a week. And you can see from the story, they're traveling in a group. In verse 44, that word group means group, like it means this caravan of people. Uh, they, they have their family, they have their relatives, neighbors, acquaintances from Nazareth. They just kind of all make that journey together. And, and they all, at the end of the feast, make their way back to Nazareth, except for one person, Jesus. He stays behind. Scholars debate whether he stayed behind intentionally or if it was accidental. That's kind of beside the point at this point. The point at, right now is he's not with them. Middle of verse 43, and his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Like your heart just starts to sink here, right? Like parents, you're like, we've gone a day's journey and our boy's not with us. They didn't know that. They began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Um, firstly, I think this shows us already something about Jesus, doesn't it? It shows us something about his character, who he is. It shows us something about his relationship with his parents. Jesus lived a life without sin, so although he grew in wisdom, became strong, was filled with wisdom, just like you and me, what, what makes him different from us is he did that perfectly. You see that already in the story, like his parents trust him. He's 12, he, he's, they know he's not off getting in trouble, and he's, he's, he's trustworthy. They trusted him enough to be on this journey with this big group and to go for a day and not really have to know where he is. They just assume he's fine. They assume he's somewhere safe in the caravan. Um, but they get a day into their journey. This is probably the end of that day. Let's set up camp. Let's hunker in. Where's Jesus? Searching around. Have you seen Jesus? Where is he within the, uh, the, the neighbors and acquaintances? Can't find him anywhere. That's, that's the home alone scene, isn't it? Like this is the, the big family, all the cousins fly to Paris, they land, baggage claim, mom's at the front because that's what moms do, passing the luggage out, like pass this one down to Kevin, just pass it on down the line, pass this to Kevin, pass this to Kevin, here, hand this to Kevin, gets to the youngest at the, at the end, here you go, Kevin, where's Kevin? Pass it back up, Kevin's not here, Kevin's not here, Kevin's not here, gets back up, Kevin's not here, mom's like, oh, Kevin's not, Kevin, Jesus! Like, that's the, this is the, the nightmare situation for, for, for Mary. He's not there. So like any good parents, they make a U-turn, head back to Jerusalem. Rest of the caravan will meet you back in Nazareth. We've got to go back and, and find Jesus. Uh, I imagine that middle day of the three is the worst, isn't it? 
because you can't do anything. Like you're just, you can't search anywhere. You can't ask anyone anything. You're just traveling. You're walking. Maybe they're, they're on a donkey. Don't know. But you're just, they've, they've, they've been traveling for a day, which means the only option is to travel for a day back. Like imagine the, the things that go through your mind. I bet you there's a little bit of tension between Mary and Joseph. Gotta be. Why didn't you know where he was? It was yours. <laughs> They're sick to their stomachs. And a day later, uh, back in the city, I bet they haven't slept. And they spend a day searching for Jesus. And probably go back to wherever they were staying. Maybe they split up for a time. Joseph goes and goes search at their favorite swimming hole. Mary goes back to Jesus' favorite bakery, finding where he is. Can't find him. Eventually, they go to the temple. And there he is, just hanging out with the, with the teachers, chopping it up with the rabbis. And what's he doing? He's sitting there. He's listening to the, to the teachers. He's, he's answering some questions. He's asking them some questions. It seems like he's oblivious or at least uninterested in this frantic search that's been going on with his parents. That's the scene you get, right? Like Mary and Joseph bust into the temple, hair's a mess, haven't slept in days, worried, sick, and Jesus is just kind of sitting there hanging out. Hey, mom and dad, come on in, pull up a seat. Do you notice the, what happens from that scene, though? What happens from here on out is it's just a series of confusions and astonishments. Like there's three parties in the room here. You have Jesus. You have the temple scribes, the teachers, and you have his parents, and no one can understand each other. Like no one, everyone's just amazed and astonished and, and not understanding anyone else. The, the, the teachers who are sitting with the boy, like they're just astonished by him. They're, they're just amazed at his answers, at, at his questions. Mary and Joseph, they're, they're just astonished that Jesus would be sitting there seemingly uninterested in the, the distress that he's caused them. And, Mary's, and, and Mary, Mary rebukes Jesus like any mother would do. Then Jesus, he genuinely seems surprised that they, they didn't know where he would be. And then in verse 50, his parents then are confused. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. Like, no one understands what each other, uh, understands each other. Everyone's just astonished. Like, what's going on here? So again, as we're reading the text, first question you should ask is, what's this telling us about Jesus? And we see that Luke, he's already giving us a glimpse of who this person is. Who is he? He's, he's sitting amongst the teachers, these rabbis. These are the experts on the scriptures. And he's going back and forth with them. And they're just amazed. And you get a sense that they're thinking, like, this is no ordinary child. And then when Mary and Joseph come busting in, Mary says, son, like this is their, their child, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your, your father and I have been looking for you everywhere. We've been searching for you in great distress. That word great distress, it's one word in, in the original language, and it means to be in agony. It's this pain, either mentally or physically. You can imagine probably both for them at this point. It means to be tormented. You, can, you, you, you know that, that torment that they must have felt looking for three days for him. 
wonder if Mary thought back to what Simeon had told her 12 years ago as she was standing in that same point, and she's thinking, this is the moment he, he was talking about, isn't it? Like, this is the moment the sword pierces my soul. We know it's not, that there's a moment of much greater agony for Jesus and Mary from the cross, but you do get that foreshadowed in this moment, don't you? But maybe in the moment she thought, this is it, such distress. And after she rebukes Jesus, Jesus turns to her and he, he kind of surprisingly says, why were you looking for me? Did, did you not know I must be in my father's house? Did you see, did you catch what he, he did there? It's almost like a play on words. Mary says, Jesus, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus takes that as an opportunity to, to gently remind Mary who his real father is. It's almost like he's not being insensitive here. He's not being irreverent, but I think he does choose his words carefully. It's like he's telling Mary, you say my father's been searching for me, but I've been with my father the whole time. My, my real father, my, the father I've had for all of eternity. Kind of feel bad for Joseph at this, <laughs> this moment, don't you? Like all the dads know what it's like to be coming second place in your kid's life for a period of time. And Jesus, he's not being disrespectful to Joseph. He's, he's simply telling them who he is. Here's this 12-year-old boy. He's been away from his parents for three days, and he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And at that moment, Mary and Joseph think exactly what those teachers thought. They thought, this is no ordinary boy. What, what you see in this interaction between Mary and Jesus is, is they're, getting a, they're coming to grips, aren't they, with the fact that theirs is not going to be a normal mother-son relationship from here on out. Luke's giving us this glimpse of, of Jesus' understanding of his favored relationship with his heavenly father. And Mary is wrestling with what that will mean for their earthly family. Aren't we seeing, even from this early age of 12, a bit of the uncomfortableness that Jesus brings into our life? Like some of the sacrifice that comes along with him being the son of God? Isn't our experience of, of understanding Jesus a bit like Mary's? You see how Jesus, he tends to disrupt how we think the normal ways things should go in our life. Mike, uh, Mike McKinley, he's a pastor, author, he said, Jesus' identity as son of God means that he will always displace things from their seemingly normal place in our lives. Embracing Jesus as your savior means that the other relationships in your life, not to mention things like your ambitions and loves and attitudes, will be rearranged and reconfigured. Let me say that again. Embracing Jesus as your Savior means that the other relationships in your lives will be rearranged and reconfigured. Everything else in your life needs to accommodate Jesus. If He is the Son of God, it cannot be otherwise. And some of you have felt that in your lives claiming Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to be the Son of God. Some of your, your families have, have rejected you. There's a strain there. 
Maybe you've lost some friends. Maybe you've lost a, a, a job opportunity. There's this displacement from the normal way things go in our lives because Jesus is the Son of God. Thirteen's a significant age for a Jewish boy. Thirteen's the, the year when he becomes a man, essentially. It's this, this coming to age. It's when they become responsible from their, for their own decisions. They're no longer under their kind of parents' accountability. Um, so here's this 12-year-old Jesus, and he's on the eve of his coming to age, and he's, he's telling his mother, ours is not going to be a normal mother-son relationship. I, he's, he's saying, I'm so grateful for Joseph as an earthly dad. I, I love him, but from here on out, I'm making this priority in my relationships. He says, I must be in my father's house. What's this telling us about Jesus? That, that quick exchange between Mary and, 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 and Jesus Luke's telling us that even from a young age of 12, Jesus has this strong sense of his identity, doesn't he? Luke's purpose here is to show us an early glimpse of Jesus' understanding of who he is and what he has come to do. Like as both fully divine son of God, but also fully human son of Mary, he's in this unique situation, isn't he? And this passage shows us that we, there's this tension arising between the normal obligations of a 12-year-old boy and the unique obligations of Jesus as this unique Son of God. And we see that when those commitments come into tension, Jesus says he must obey his heavenly Father. And, and you'll see as we make our way through Luke that that is his rule of life. That's the way he will live the rest of his life. Even right up to his death, his commitment in his life and in his death is to do the will of his heavenly Father. That's what that, that, that phrase means. You can either translate it, I must be in my Father's house, or some translations have it, I must be about my Father's business. I must be about my Father's business. Do you see how Luke is showing us Jesus' true identity here? He's the son of Mary, but he's also the unique son of God who has come to be about his heavenly father's business. He has come, at, even at the age of 12 here, and he knows that this will be his priority in life. That's the answer to the first question. What does this text tell us about Jesus? It's showing us that Jesus was fully human son of Mary, but he's also the fully divine son of God, and he has been sent from heaven to accomplish his father's purposes, to be about his father's business. Jesus has come for a purpose, he's telling us. He's come to accomplish his Father's will, to accomplish his Father's plan. And Luke's showing us that Jesus, even at the age of 12, he fully understands that to be his identity and his purpose in life, and it will affect the way he lives the rest of his life. That's what the passage is telling us about Jesus. And what about that second question? What does it mean for us? Um, in order to answer that question, you have to well, look back at Jesus. Um, you see two things about him here that really affect us. Um, firstly, we see his identity as son of God who's come to be about his father's business. He's come to accomplish his father's purposes. 
That, so his, his the kind of broader sense of his, of his purpose is to do his Father's will, but Jesus gives a specific, he, he narrows that down and he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. Like that's Jesus' purpose, is to be this, this role of Savior. But not only is he our Savior, he's also our example. And Jesus is this, this trailblazer in the Christian faith. He's, he's, his life is the one that we try to emulate, isn't it? WWJD, like that's, that's true. He's, he's our example. We are disciples of Christ. We, we, we try to be like him. We follow in his ways. And so really before, quickly before we end, look at, I want you to see three things in the way that Jesus is our example in this text. Firstly, like we already said, he had this clear sense of his identity, which meant that he was obligated to do his father's will. I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. That word must, it actually has, more a sen- has less a sense of inevitability. So it's, you can't read it like he's kind of being snarky to marry here. Like, where else would I be? It's, it has more a sense of necessity. This is what's required of me. I must be about my father's business. This is what's required of me. But also, it's important to understand that it was a delight for Jesus. Like, never be tempted to think that Jesus is being constrained by the Father's will over and against what he desires. He, he obediently and he joyfully submitted to his Father's will. It's the first kind of thing we see of Jesus. Second thing you see about Jesus is he's passionate about the Scriptures, isn't he? Like, here's a young, young man from the age of 12, and he's sitting with the temple, the teachers in the temple. That's where he wants to be. He's, he's earnestly listening. He's eager to learn. And they're amazed by his understanding and his answers. He's, he's passionate about the scriptures. So those are the first two things that you see as his kind of example for us. Jesus is firm in his identity as son of God. Therefore, he's obediently and joyfully submitting to God's purposes in his life. Secondly, his interaction with the teachers show us that he is passionate about the scriptures. He is glad to be in his father's house, learning about his father's will from his father's word. And thirdly, notice in verse 51, after Mary and Joseph found him, they have this exchange. Luke tells us he went back with them to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. He was submissive to his parents. So he didn't use that that relationship with his heavenly father as an excuse to rebel against his earthly parents. Instead, he was submissive to them. Like if any child could make the case for not listening to their parents, it was Jesus, right? But that's not what he does. After gently reminding Mary who his identity is and who his real father was, he doesn't use that as an excuse to exert his own will. Like, though Jesus is worthy of all glory and all honor, he submitted to the authorities that his father had placed in his life. What an example for us. Doesn't that go completely against the culture that we find ourselves in, doesn't it? Our culture says, you know what's best. Like, find your own way. Go at it your own way. Authorities tend to, like, hamper that, Go at it your own way. Assert your own will. Jesus is this example of obediently and joyfully submitting to the good authority that the Father has placed in his life. So what does that mean for us? Well, if Jesus 
obediently and joyfully submitted to God's purposes in his life? If Jesus desired to understand the scriptures, if Jesus was submissive to the good authorities in his life, shouldn't we follow our leader? Shouldn't we follow his example? Like, shouldn't we, after placing our faith in his finished work on the cross, shouldn't we now understand our identity firmly as, as now also sons and daughters of God? Shouldn't we obediently and joyfully submit to his purposes in our life? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't his will take priority, priority over every other thing in our lives? Shouldn't we also desire to understand the scriptures? Shouldn't we desire to learn about our Father's purposes from our Father's word? And also, shouldn't we humbly submit to the authorities God has placed in our lives? Maybe that's, get my, get my kids back in here. Like this is, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a parent relationship. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's the authority, the government in your life. Jesus is our example. Um, really quickly, though, as we end, here's, make sure you see how you are vastly different from him, though. Like, we are different from Jesus because he did those things perfectly. He, he, he perfectly lived in accord with his identity with his father. He, he perfectly submitted to his father's will, even up to his death. He, he perfectly understood and, and walked according to the scriptures. Jesus perfectly submitted to the authorities in his life, especially his parents. And we all know deeply, don't we, no matter how hard we try, just how imperfect we are those things. So do you see how Jesus' example, it helps us by correcting our behavior and by giving us an example of, of how to live in our lives? But don't you also see that in the end, it also condemns us by showing just how terribly we have failed at walking according to God's ways? Like when, G when we see Jesus' example, don't we so clearly see that we, unlike Jesus, are not righteous in and of ourselves? That we, unlike Jesus, need a righteousness and an obedience that comes from outside of ourselves? And so this is when we get back to who Jesus is, what he has come to do for us. That Jesus came to be our savior because we need one. Jesus came to live a perfectly righteous, sinless life in order to be able to one day die on your behalf. He said, I must be about my father's business. And his father's business, his father's will, is that Jesus would give up his life for you and I. Like I said last week, Jesus came to be the substitute. He came to be the one who the sword would fall on so that it wouldn't fall on you. He would pay the penalty for our sins. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? It shows that Jesus is the, the Son of God come to be about his father's business, and that business is to seek and save the lost. He's our example, but he's also our savior. Let's stand and pray.